All right, now, I want you to know out there called the internet. I don't know if you've heard about this. It's kind of new technology. And there's something that you can do, which is even if you miss a week being in our community, you can actually still listen to what we talked about. I know it's shocking. I don't know why my mic's cutting out. Is it because I'm sitting? Armando, it's because I'm sitting? Are you saying that, well, I won't, I'm editing. And, and so this is my kind of sarcastic, very dumb way of saying, um, as we embark between now and August, uh, looking at this letter, uh, it was never meant to be read in 35-minute chunks. The whole thing was meant to be studied as a, as a unit. And so would you please follow along with us, because I can't repeat, like last week we had... I think some of the most important conversations we're ever going to have in a community like this. And that is about how, we, how Jesus comes once you begin to follow him and bestows literally as an act of grace an entirely new identity over us and then invites us to live up to the identity that's already true. And that's not a concept that's immediately you know, graspable. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the example I used was being a husband or being a father. I'm pronounced a husband before I have any idea what that means. Right? A, a pastor says, I pronounce you husband and wife, and the rest of my life is spent living what is already true of me. Jesus is a very similar thing. So Paul begins the letter by calling the church, he calls them the community of saints, the community of holy ones. And we all know that we still sin, and yet we've been pronounced holy. That, 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 that sin is no longer a fundamental identity. And so one of the things that the invitation now becomes is that you and I begin to live what's already true of us. That you and I begin literally the way I'm learning to be a husband, that we would live sainthood. And this morning we want to look at a different concept in Ephesians chapter 1, verse One, Paul, an apostle, a sent one is what the word means, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, or he could have easily written Mission via Hill, except it wouldn't sound as biblical, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, from verse 3 all the way to verse 14 is one sentence in Greek. There's a bunch of sentences in English because we, don't, we have this concept of run-on sentences that are bad. Paul, literally, this is one long sentence that is Trinitarian. It speaks of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, how they're all actively involved in the process of rescuing us. It is one of the most epic, liturgical, like chock-full of heavy theological language sentences you're ever going to read. And it's so thick, we're just going to take bits and pieces of it as we sit in it. So this is one one whole sentence. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy, holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship and, of course, daughtership through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure, with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He's freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished upon us. And He just keeps going. He doesn't pause. He doesn't stop. I mean, literally, you just go, 
I know that's really important, and it sounds really passionate. I really don't have the foggiest idea what he's talking about. Remember, Paul spends the first half of the letter reminding us what Jesus has done and who we are in him, and the second part of the letter inviting us to live what's already true. So this morning, we want to look at a topic that Paul raises in this front section, and the way I want to introduce it is by um, showing you a bit of a video from a conference that I did with my son, Seth. Seth is two and a half now. Seth was born with Down syndrome. And Seth, the, our journey with him has been an amazing journey into some of the, some of the concepts we're going to study this morning. So turn your eyes to the screen, and you will see two very attractive people on this stage. Now, one of the things I absolutely love about that is juxtapos- juxtaposing the things and the names that he will be called by other people in this world and how marvelous he is when you see him. As a concept, it's very easy to describe him using uh, non-too-flattering words. And yet when you see him, it just, he's just this wonderful little blessing. And what Seth does is that Seth serves as a reminder to us that our worth, significance, and value really isn't tied to how well we function, how smart we are, how attractive we are, how much we can produce. And in Ephesus, there was a worldview that really emphasized all of those things. In fact, uh, to, to give you a little background, between uh, the time the Old Testament ends and the time of Jesus. There's 400 years, called the intertestimonial period. Thank you very much. During those 400 years, a man named Alexander the Great sets about to conquer the known world. Alexander has a very deliberate project. His project is not only to conquer the known world, but to Hellenize the known world, to turn the world Greek. It's not just to conquer through military prowess, but it's to win over to the Greek way of looking at the world. So what Alexander would do is he would conquer a region and then he would build a theater so that the Greek mythology of their gods and goddesses could be acted out in front of everybody. He would build a temple so that you could worship the Greek gods and goddesses. He would would build a gymnasium where you could go and learn Greek, study the Greek poets and philosophers. You would... um, You would practice for the athletic games that the Greeks so emphasized. They would build arenas where you would actually compete in the nude for all of these athletic contests because what the Greeks valued more than anything else was the perfection of the human ideal. In their art, in their sculpture, there was this huge pressure to, uh, to live up to bodily perfection And the perfection of the mind and the perfection of the emotion, sound mind and sound body was the way they would describe it. In fact, there was so much pressure that Jewish, young Jewish men who who were throughout kind of the empire at that stage uh, felt the pressure to undergo reverse circumcision, which don't even picture that, to in order to not be uh, set apart. Uh, when they would compete in these games. There was such pressure to blend in and to live up to this ideal. The, the, the Greek ideal was glory run through achievement. And so how good looking you were and how smart you were and how victorious you were were the things that mattered most. Now I'm so glad we've moved on 
from looking at the world that way. But you have to understand, before the time of Jesus and before the birth of his church, Alexander the Great took this project to Hellenize the known world. The Romans came in and just co-opted it. They, they Latinized everything, but essentially they just continued and codified the work of the Greeks. And central to the Greek thought, central to Greek thought was the perfection of the human person, the human body. So even the statues we still have, they're naked because of the perfection of the human body. We still talk about the Greek philosophers and the Greek thinkers and the Greek mathematicians. Now when you live in a culture that emphasizes human perfection. What do you do with those parts of humanity that aren't perfect? Well, in their case, they push them to the margins. In fact, we have records of circuses that would travel around the Greek and Roman empires made up of nothing but the deformed and the disabled that would be put on display for the amusement of the crowds. Rulers would have in their courts the deformed and the disabled who would serve to entertain their guests. And very common uh, in that day was a practice that was called the exposure of infants. If you had an infant that was born that was deformed or was unwanted or disabled in any way, you would take that infant outside of the city gates and you would place it out in the open to die. You would expose it to the elements and to the animals. You wouldn't euthanize it yourself. You would just drop it off in the middle of nowhere and leave. This practice was not only done for pragmatic reasons, it was done as religious duty to the empire. Because if a healthy child was a sign of God's, the blessing of the gods, then a sickly child was a, a sign of the displeasure of the gods. And so literally, you had not only a cultural obligation, but a religious obligation to get rid of children. This is so prevalent in Greek literature and history. Go ahead, fire up the PowerPoint. Look at this. There's a dude named Hilarion who writes this to his wife. Next. We're still in Alexandria, don't worry. Um, if I remain, I beg and beseech you to take care of the little child, and as soon as we receive our wages, I'll send them to you. If, good luck to you, you have a child. If it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, throw it out. I mean, it's just kind of like, and get some milk, you know, on the way home. I mean, it's just like, it's not even a, a sons were the prized possessions back then. Next, Seneca, we slaughter an ox that is a too aggressive. We strangle a dog that has rabies. This is another way to say it. We plunge the knife into infected cattle, lest they infect the rest of the herd. Children who are born weakly and deformed, we drown. You see the implications, right? To guard the rest of the race, we must get rid of. Next, Bill and Ted would say Socrates. The, the children of inferior parents or any child of the others that is born defective, they'll hide in a secret and unknown place as is appropriate. It is if indeed the guardian race is to remain pure. In fact, Ephesus 
uh, was home to the, um, the most renowned gynecologist of the ancient world who wrote a whole book called How Do You Know If a Child You Have is Worth Rearing? And he gives all these tests. Now, how it worked in Ephesus, Ephesus was built, it was a harbor, and the town was built back into a hillside. And at the top of the hill is where you would leave the infants. Now, if, that, if this whole practice isn't evil enough, Ephesus was the center of the slave trade in Asia Minor. So the slavers would know where the infants were left, and they would go capture them, not rescue them, but capture them and raise them to be slaves or to be prostitutes. So if, like in Hilarion's case, it's a girl, I don't want it. A slaver would come in, raise this girl. Under Roman law, whoever took the girl now owned the girl. And he would raise her and then sell her into prostitution. Or if a boy wasn't too deformed and sickly, they would be reared in a household to be sold into slavery. Now, how awesome is this? He said sarcastically. I mean, this is awful. Would you agree? This is Ephesus. This is what happens when you worship at the altar of human perfection. Anything that's not perfect is cast aside. Now, Paul says some things in that passage we read that I want to reread and hear them in this context. Because Paul is doing something here that is absolutely magnificent. Ephesians 1, verse 3 again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now here's where it gets so rich. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy, and the word blameless there means without defect. You think that's just a random word Paul used? To be holy and without defect in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. Now, brothers and sisters, there is no more powerful image that Paul could have used in a world like this than to talk about choosing and loving and adopting. Don't get hung up on the predestined word. Nobody in the first century would have heard that word and said, oh, I wonder if God's a Calvinist. Nobody cared. You have to understand how we're four verses in and Paul later addresses slaves in the church community. So it's very likely there were people who'd been abandoned as kids, raised in households, sold into slavery, had now come to Christ, and Paul's going to lead with the idea that you are God's holy people and God is not like the Greeks. He chooses in love beforehand and his agenda is to present you to the Father holy and without defect. And the, the image he uses is that of adoption. Now, Adoption back then wasn't like adoption today. You have to understand how epic this image is. Back then, adoption meant son placing. If you were a wealthy family and you were childless, your estate went to your oldest male heir. So you would adopt a slave into your family. 
And the way that worked is the father who held life and death power over the family. The father would initiate the adoption process. The son would have to agree to be adopted. There would have to be witnesses that gathered. And then what would happen is the slave's debts were canceled. The slave's name was changed. His identity was changed. He would share in the new status, in the new family, in the new identity of the father. And the thing that was most powerful, get this about Roman adoption, is that only biological children could be disowned. Adopted children could never be disowned. We have examples of parents, Roman fathers, disowning their biological children so that they could adopt another son. So of all the images that Paul could use in such a screwed up culture, he talks of a father choosing in love. The image is God is the God that runs to the top of the hill. And he scoops up the unwanted and the defective and he presents them before his father as without defect. So that they are adopted into God's family. I mean, you're four verses in, there would have been sobbing in this little church. Guaranteed. This is the analogy. Check out this sweet PowerPoint right here. You just thought, you think that was good. Look at that. That's like some seriously small font. But, but here's the analogy. He says, okay, everyone's familiar with slaves. In, in the Roman world, for them to be slaves, it was fearful circumstances, no hope, low status. They were considered inferior. They were subjects of Rome. Paul is making the argument later in Ephesians that you and I are slaves too, regardless of whether or not our world calls us slaves. We were born into bondage to fear and sin. We were objects of shame in God's eyes. We were inferior according to the standards of God's law. We were subjects of the kingdom of darkness. In the same way, look at Roman adoption. From slavery to a family. You go from one family to another. You have a new father, a new family. The father chooses. You share in the family's higher status, new name, new identity. You receive comfort and assurance. You leave the old family. Your debts are canceled. You cannot be disowned. So Paul uses Roman adoption as a great picture of what happens to those in Christ. We have been rescued from that bondage into a new kingdom. We have a new father, a new family. The father initiates this all. We share in the father's and the family's higher status, new identity and name. We receive comfort, insurance. All of our debts are canceled. We cannot be disowned. The image is that the father disowned his biological son so that he could adopt sons and daughters. That's the image Paul gives. Now, can we agree that in Christ we are forgiven? But is that the whole story? No. And by the way, forgiveness, if that's all it was, we'd be pretty stoked. But far too many of us live cowardly, weak, passionless Christian lives because we have not come to the place of recognizing and living in the reality of the security that we have in God's good world. See, security in Christ doesn't mean bad things won't happen. Security in Christ means when they happen, 
He's with us. He carries us. He holds us. He doesn't abandon us. Jesus will walk around saying, what's the worst somebody can do? Kill you? (laughs) Says the dude who gave himself willingly, right? How dangerous would we be if we actually believe stuff like this? And not just saying about it, not just, see, this isn't self-esteem, is it? This isn't about how great we are. This isn't therapy. This is about how great he is and what he does with outcasts and misfits and people the world would cast aside because we don't measure up to the ideal of our day. We have uh, friends who for two years tried to adopt somebody out of the foster care system. It was, and we watched it from a distance, but the pain and the agony, the ups and the downs, the bureaucracy, the hypocrisy in all of this. I mean, it just suffocated their hearts. The amount of money and energy and time and emotion they had to spend. Because they were driven by a pursuit. Not just for any kid. But for that kid. They fought for him. They were single-mindedly focused. Could it be... Paul leads with the image of a God who runs to the top of a hill of castoffs and presents a son who goes to his father and saying, here are these who I found without defect to be adopted into his family with all of the imagery that portrays. Debts are canceled and old identities put away, cannot be disowned. And that the intensity Just seeing how quick you were. That the intensity with which human parents go after adopted children is a small and pale echo of the intensity after which a father in heaven goes after us. I mean, I don't look at God this way. I feel like I gotta get cleaned up, you know? I gotta get all religious, I gotta get my act together. No, Paul tells a story of a God who, before the creation of the world, he tells a story of a God who isn't playing by the Hellenistic system. Paul tells a story of a God who is single-mindedly focused. Another story, different adoption. Mother and father adopt a son into their uh, family or home or hamley. into their family, out of the foster care system. They put this together that the way that this kid, this little boy had been punished by his biological parents was that they would lock him into his room for the weekend, all weekend without food. That's how they would punish this kid. Now the kid learned to anticipate this and so... Throughout the week, he would steal food and hide it in his room, right? I mean, 
out of necessity for crying out loud. He gets placed into a new family. What does he do, quite naturally? Steals food and hides it in his room. Now suppose you are the mother or the father. And suppose you, of the adopted family, and suppose you find these stashes of food around his room, you put two and two together. Let me ask you a question. Do you yell at that kid for hiding food in your house? Do you shame him for that? Or do you say, you don't have to do that anymore? We are not like your old family. We will never starve you that way. We will, you will never go hungry in our family. Would you shame a kid like that? Or would you grieve over the fact that he had lived in a way where that was necessary? See, I firmly believe that for Paul to declare us as saints in Christ means that God isn't up there looking at us with our addictions, our weaknesses, our sins, going, don't go on it, you guys, quit it. He's saying instead, you don't have to hide food anymore. My family isn't like your old family. My kingdom isn't like the kingdom that you've lived in. You don't have to do that. Could it be that's the image And do you think this adopted child, do you think it would take time for him to actually believe that? Absolutely. So perhaps there are a few of us for whom God would say, it's going to take some time for you to trust this, but you don't have to live that way anymore. You think there's life there. There's not life there. And instead of yelling and shaming and condemning, our Father now simply says, it's not how my family works. Of all the images that Paul could have used to describe the work of Jesus to a culture that had so idealized perfection they would get rid of anything unwanted and undesirable, Paul says, in love you have been chosen and you've been adopted as sons and daughters. Do you think there was a dry eye in the early church that would read this? Nothing in their world, no God, no goddess, no philosophy, no piece of wisdom would ever talk of God this way. The God who runs up to the top of the hill. 